Good morning, everybody. Chief Patrol Agent Ryan Landrum here at the U.S. Border Patrol Academy coming to you with a, another What's Important Now podcast. Today, we have a very special guest, Kathleen Scudder, the Executive Director for the Mission Support Directorate at U.S. Border Patrol Headquarters in Washington, D.C. XD Scudder, welcome. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. So I'm really, really excited to dig into uh, the history uh, that is Kathleen Scudder. Um, we were talking a little bit this morning, and uh, this is exciting for me because you've pretty much done it all. And you have a tremendous amount of uh, experience and a wealth of knowledge that I think uh, the audience will really get a lot out of. Um, but I want to start off in September of 1996. You EOD'd at the Nogales station in the Tucson sector in Arizona. Mm-hmm. And I have to ask you, do you happen to remember your class chant? I do. 322 Motivated, Dedicated, Tri-State Crew. All right. Tri-State meaning? I went to three different states. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good deal. And the all-Southwest board at the time, right? There's a brief history, a brief time in our history of the U.S. Border Patrol. We started sending some folks to the northern border that came much yeah, later than, yeah. <laughs> than all of us. But um, it has been tradition and, and uh, practice even today that we send all the folks that graduate the U.S. Border Patrol Academy directly to the southwest border. Correct. Excellent. So tell me about Nogales in 1996. It was very busy yeah. in 1996. The traffic was shifting from San Diego, California, over to Nogales. Um, at that time, when I EOD'd, the station was maybe like 100 people, and uh, it quickly grew to over 500. Yeah. Um, we started out in a little gas station <laughs> on one of the main main roads down there in Nogales, and we had one big cell and one small cell for like the really bad guys. Yeah. Uh, but just, um, it was very small. We, we were using typewriters yeah. <laughs> to do 213s. We had the carbon copied 213s yep. still back then, um, but it was a lot of fun, a lot of opportunity, great time. So you, you talk about cells. This is a short-term detention, right? And get, characterize for me the volume of apprehensions at the time against the one big cell and the one little cell. Sure. Was that adequate? <laughs> no, absolutely not. We were catching probably 1,500 people a day. A day. A day, yeah, just at Nogales Station. Right. So it was crazy back then. Excellent. A lot of uh, Nogales, uh, I think right now, if I, I'd have to check the math, but it's probably the largest station in the Border Patrol. Th- I think they're they're on par with McAllen. McAllen. Yeah. Yeah. Both very, very large stations. So when you start off, you know, 20 plus five years ago or so, you uh, you had 100, and it's probably four or five, 600 more than that right now. Yeah. So have you been back? I have been back a couple times. Um, uh, a couple of years ago, I went out there for Memorial, and uh, the station itself really hasn't changed that much, but yeah. the AOR has changed a lot. You want to talk about the memorial? The what? The memorial? Um, yeah. 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 So I had a, a classmate who was killed in the line of duty uh, June 3rd, 1998, 1998 yeah. uh, Alex Kerpnick. He was an immigrant from um, the Eastern Bloc. Um, he immigrated to the United States, uh, and his family lived in L.A., yeah. and, uh, you know, he was the only son. Uh, he had a sister. Um, but he was killed in uh, Potrero Canyon. He was shot in the head by drug smugglers. Mm-hmm. And uh, he died on the way to the hospital uh, that night. So we got together for the 20-year memorial of his um, of his passing almost, I guess it's four years ago now, because his 25th is coming up next year. Mm-hmm. And uh, a bunch of classmates and I <clears throat> worked with Tucson Sector to put something together. Years prior, an agent's son had built 
a memorial for Alex at the place where he was killed right. in the canyon for his Eagle Scout project. So that has been in place there. It's got uh, the Star of David, um, and then it's just, you know, it's a nice stone memorial with a plaque on it and everything. So we kind of rededicated at that point in time. A lot of people were in attendance. The U.S. attorneys who prosecuted his shooters were in, in attendance. Um, the chief of the Border Patrol was in attendance for Tucson sector at the time and uh, it was it was a really great memorial a lot of people a lot of people showed up a lot of classmates who are no longer with the Border Patrol yeah. Alex had an, an imprint and an impression on every single one of us yeah this is a it's a tragic story but it's also um, kind of personifies who we are Absolutely. right so it's a classmate that makes it even closer to home um, but I, I would argue that that particular memorial is maybe one of the best ones that we have in the Border Patrol and I Thanks for sharing the, uh, the the genesis of how that particular memorial came about. I don't think many people know that, but it's a it's a fantastic memorial, and um, I think maybe you might hear this in the you know kind of line of duty deaths, whether it's military or whether it's uh, law enforcement. We kind of use this saying of "we never forget," right? But this is an illustration that we truly never forget. Right. Right. Absolutely. So it's part of a part of the fabric of who we are. It's family, you know, um, and then. The other piece that I that I really appreciate about this is this is he's an immigrant from the Eastern Bloc, right? We have such a diverse workforce; yes. it is incredible, you know. And they're willing to immigrate to this country and then protect our borders. and then protect our borders and give their lives for it. Yeah. That is an amazing story, yes. amazing story. So you do time in Nogales, <clears throat> and then you go up to <clears throat> 2004. You transfer up to the Erie, Pennsylvania station. How was that? So we opened that station. Yeah. Um, it was after 9-11. They were beefing up the northern border. My mom had passed. Ryan and I were looking for something different. <laughs> and uh, so uh, we went up to the northern border, and we opened this little station. And there's a PIC, two supervisors, and three agents. Wow. Five of us. Six of us counting the PIC. The two supervisors are my husband and I. Right, right, right. And then the PIC is, is uh, a gentleman from, from Buffalo Sector. And we're in the ferry boat terminal <laughs> in Erie, Pennsylvania, which never opened up to ferry boats. <laughs> but it it, it, it it worked for us for the time being. But that ended up being a lot of working with state and locals, translating. Um, you would be surprised the number of people that transit I-90 right. through the upstate areas and into New York and um, how many of them are either overstays or illegal just to start with it was it was it was interesting yeah different definitely a huge change from nogales no doubt huge change. <laughs> no doubt yeah. um you mentioned you mentioned ryan and, and obviously if you go back or if you're a, a listener of the podcast chief scudder ryan scudder acting uh, executive assistant commissioner for enterprise services uh but your husband right and i do want to get into that in a little bit uh, i think there's also a story to tell there just about uh, you know going back to legacy and family uh, being able to um, lead people and lead change in this organization while also maintaining a healthy relationship, raise kids, uh, those types of things. I think it's a it's a great story for people to hear as well. So you guys are the supervisors at Erie, Pennsylvania, and then you get an op opportunity to go to headquarters. Clearly, you didn't know what you were getting into. <laughs> um, and you become an ops officer uh, at headquarters in the Southwest Border Division. These, these divisions, and as you know, the directorates uh, change uh, names over, over time. Right. But at the time, you go, you're an ops officer in Southwest Border Division. How was that? 
Um, it was interesting. It was definitely something new and different. And you hear about headquarters and you think it's one thing. <laughs> um, as an ops officer, I was doing, you know, like putting together the the incident reports for the for the 24-hour period, you know, prior for the right. chief. And, and I had an opportunity to become an adjutant at that time as well. So I was an adjutant to the Southwest Border Chief. Um, it was Chief Self at the time. Mm-hmm. And that, um, that helped to really give me some exposure and experience that, I mean, you get to sit in the room and be a fly on the wall and yeah. really hear how, how things work. So that was a great opportunity. Yeah, I, I share that same experience. When I was at headquarters, I got to be the adjutant for uh, Chief Mike Fisher at the time. And you're right, like you're not a decision maker, you're not calling any shots, but um, you become broader and deeper on how the sausage is made, if you will, uh, that it eventually informs how you lead today. Maybe you take some good, you take some bad, or lead the bad, but you are observing and uh, absorbing everything you possibly can that, that later on uh, kind of informs who you are as a leader. Right. And that was at the beginning of us using adjectives. Yeah. <laughs> I was like one of the first three or four, I think. How many females were at headquarters at the time? I think I was the only... No, there were two of us in Southwest Border Division. Yeah. Myself and uh, Rebecca Salazar. Oh, yeah. Excellent. Uh, Executive Director for Privacy and Diversity yeah. right now. Excellent. Um, so you are able to do that, and within that uh, that tenure at headquarters when you're an ops officer, you promote to an A-chief. Where was that at? It was in Southwest Border Division also, um, and then I kind of got an opportunity at that point to take a detail to DHS. Okay. And I worked in their um, um, operational planning as a CBP liaison. Mm. So that was kind of uh, at the point, I think, that my career really started to take off. Sure. Uh, with those opportunities. So I spent 18 months over there. That's awesome. I, I talk about this, uh, whether it's mentorship opportunities or, or generally in, in uh, conversations. I think it's super important that if you aspire to be a executive leader in this organization, you need to have done something outside of this organization, right? You can be a board of choice in your entire career. In fact, I think I talked to, with Ryan about this as well because he's done some similar stuff. Um, but just kind of characterize how, how you think you are a better leader today because you stepped out of your comfort zone, quite frankly, and went to this you know, brand new DHS thing. Or was this at the knack of the time, the, yes. the Nebraska, Nebraska Avenue complex, complex yes. right? So it's not even the, the big, beautiful building at yeah. St. Elizabeth that it is right now. It's in the knack that we were. But they did have free parking. Oh, well, So that was very that nice. Is a, <laughs> free parking in the National Capital Region <laughs> is, uh, is quite the perk, yes, for it sure. Was, it was. Um, so, so tell me, how, how, you, how do you think it, it made you a better leader today to step out of your comfort zone then? Yeah, so we'll... First, it gave me an opportunity to teach other people about the Border Patrol and what we're really like and kind of represent the organization in the way I want it to be represented, right? But it also helped me to learn how everybody else functions and where we fit in and how those things feed into the big homeland security sort of machine, right? Right. Um, And I think it definitely made me more well-informed, more patient, um, to hear other perspectives, to learn other t- perspectives, and to understand where they're coming from. So right. we had people from ICE, from emergency management, other DHS, DHS offices, CIS. I mean, you name the DHS gambit. Right. We're part of these these planning teams. And we were working on, like, national sort of big event kind of plans, right. like nuclear response and <laughs> things like that. So that was another thing that was very interesting and out of my yeah. scope that I'd, you know, had done anything Related to 
up to that point. Yeah, that's awesome. So contextually, like for the audience, DHS, huge organization, hundreds of thousands of people, right? And it's and it's a it's a brand new learning organization. This thing's just coming on, um, and then we have CBP, another huge organization. This is cascading downwards in terms of uh, scope. To your point. And then within CBP, we have the U.S. Border Patrol, right. right? So to say that you came from the U.S. Border Patrol, you know, five layers down from DHS, if you will, to go uh, inform. Uh, and really, I think uh, the, the part that I like the most about it is you're telling our story, right? So you're working really, and you're telling it both verbally, right? But you're also telling it through your hard work, right? You're like, hey, Border Patrol must have some really capable folks that can come in here and, and, and be broader and be deeper on all the topics that relate to defending the homeland generally, not just the border. Um, speaks volumes to um, the men and women that we actually have working for us, as well as their willingness and ability to go represent who we are in really, really positive ways in much bigger uh, arenas, if you will. And during that time, I'm learning a whole new skill set. I'm learning how to do like federal level planning, which is, as you know, (laughs) a very intricate process, right? And I had had no idea, you know, as a young border tradition graduating the academy that I would be involved in anything like that or even have an opportunity to. I just wanted to be a law enforcement officer. I tell that story so much. Like if you just go work really hard and get to know your job as a border tradition, the world, literally the world opens up to you. We have uh, international affairs. We have people all over the world, border agents, doing, you know, pushing our borders out from from the southwest border, the northern border. We have people at the Department of Homeland Security. We have people in multiple different agencies doing great work on our behalf to then tie it back down into how do we use these opportunities to better secure the border, right? There is something for everyone. Everyone. <laughs> it is special ops. We talk about this all the time. A lot of folks that come through here want to be special operators. Mm-hmm. We have that as well, right? All, all the things that, that people want to do, you can do it. But it first starts with being a good teammate as a Border Patrol agent and Absolutely. learning your job. Absolutely. Yeah. So from there, you you uh, we like to affectionately call it, you get out of jail free, mm-hmm. right? You get your first pass out of headquarters mm-hmm. and you go down to uh, beautiful South Texas, Yes. Right. In 2010, you become a uh, field operations supervisor at the McAllen station. This is uh, we kind of coined this as an FOS. We don't longer have that position. It has since become the watch commander position at a higher grade. So you're a GS-13 FOS, which is now the GS-14 watch commander. But um, you did some time in Nogales. You go up to Pennsylvania, hit headquarters, and then you go down to a whole new yes. ball game in South Texas. Yeah. And by the way, in 2010, it was getting a little sporty in South Texas. Tell me about that, especially that station. I think maybe the work is following me. But (laughs) (laughs) in 2010, uh, McAllen was starting to get hit with the unaccompanied juvenile crisis. Um, And it kind of really hit ahead in 2012. But when I was in RGB sector, if you look at my resume, it really looks like I can't hold a job. So I did the FOS position for a year. Um, and then they found out that I had some planning background, sure. so they pulled me up to Intel, and I did the SOS, did an SOS position there. Um, but back to the FOS position, it was really hard for me to decide to move on from that because yeah. I was having fun again. Yeah, you know, you get yeah. out of headquarters, you're like, oh yeah, the field. That's the best time in your whole career you spend. I think is is the field work, and I'm getting to like work with with people again, and we're catching. You know, it was just it was great. Um, so it was a really hard decision to make that next step. 
But I think every step and decision you make provides different and new opportunities. Right. So it, w- it was the right thing to do to, right. to step into that SOS position. The, uh, the field operations supervisor, now the watch commander, um, is a position where uh, I've kind of coined it as the patrol agent in charge of a unit, a patrol yes. group, mm-hmm. right? So if a station has three, maybe four patrol groups, uh, a day shift patrol group, and a swing shift right. or an evening shift patrol group, and a midnight shift patrol group, you're the person that the actual patrol agent in charge trusts to, um, number one, enact the vision of the patrol agent in charge, but also take care of the people. Like you actually have a finger on the pulse of the people. And the mission is really important, right? right? But that watch commander uh, really has an opportunity to impact uh, the environment for the people. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So I, it's, it's a great position. And, and you probably, you know, to your point, you start to probably realize that maybe your time in these types of positions is coming to an end. So you're enjoying every last second of it. Right. You know, you're going to ascend to levers, levels of greater responsibility, uh, probably sooner rather than later. Right. So, uh, you know, I have, I have the same uh, thoughts and I tell the same story about being a PIC. Like yeah. I you kind of really like, man, I, it was hard to walk away from that job because, you know, at that point, it's like, all right, it's the best job in the board. Job. Yeah. But, you know, it's like that's the last time you had that kind of connectivity with our workforce. Yes. At that point, you start getting second, third, uh, four layers, if you will, uh, removed. Uh, and this is why we do the, the, the job, the mission and the people. And, and, and if you have the sense enough to understand that you're probably not long for that job, it, it starts to make those things really hard to walk away from. Yeah. Yeah. And it's hard for the people to yeah. know that you're not going to be there. Oh, yeah. yeah. And maybe some enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about you. You, I believe while you're in RGV, you become the chief of staff for the Corpus Christi Regional Coordination Mechanism, which we call the RECOM or called the RECOM at the time. What is the RECOM? What does the chief of staff of the RECOM do? And and, uh, what came out of that? So the regional coordinating mechanisms were a DHS initiative to integrate maritime operations. So it was U.S. Coast Guard, HSI, and CBP. And that's everything in CBP, Border Patrol, Air Marine, OFO. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was charged as the chief of staff, and it's not an official like title position. Right. I was an assistant chief, or actually, I think I was still SOS and Intel at the right. time when I took that position. And I was charged with leading the development of the Corpus Christi Recom. Mm-hmm. So that meant that I had to wrangle <laughs> all of these um, type A personalities, um, all but one, one, one female, one other female from OFO. Um, so I had AMO, U.S. Coast Guard. Um, and then the other HSI and the other parts of, of CBP. Now, you've got operators and you've got HSI, yeah. investigators. So you can understand kind of the rub there. Right. Particularly, this was developed to share information right. um, and then develop cases together and, and address threats together. Yeah. Uh, the first thing it, we did was share each other's schedules. Yeah. Very simple. When are you going to be out there? Yeah. Let's cross. Let's cover. You know. Let's develop this together and work the threat. Mm-hmm. You know, as an entity. Yeah. So uh, what I like about this, the story that it tells me, is that Corpus Christi Recom South Texas. If I'm looking at it through through a border patrol lens, like, why do we care about the water? We kind of have a land border issue. Exactly. Right? We do. But <laughs> in South Texas and, and California, we also yeah. have a maritime uh, mission. Right. So they, you know, they land on the beaches. Right. Dope washes up on the beaches. Right. 
um, all kinds of, you know, it's not just a land border threat. Kind of goes back to our point about if you want to do it, it's out there for you. I mean, I, I guarantee you in 1996, as you're coming on board with no. Nogales Station, you never thought you'd be in Corpus Christi, Texas, no. um, which is... I probably had never even heard of it. Probably not. Which is <laughs> I un- hadn't which heard is of Nogales. Which because so. this is South yeah. Texas. This it's, is it's one of those things. Yeah. Um, but the point is, is like, man, we, the threats that are out there and the threats that we address um, are are significant. Uh, it may sound like dope and it may sound like, uh, you know... Uh, boats full of uh, migrants, you know, washing ashore, that kind of thing. But you never know who's on those things. You know, the the borders, the border at the time um, is porous, right? So why would the adversary choose to put somebody in a boat and try and, you know, launch them out into the water and back up to, you know, up the coast? Uh, those things have to be taken very seriously. Like, we know we're being effective on the land border when we start to see more activity in the maritime arena because right. it is more expensive. Right. It's more expensive for the smuggler as well, right. for the syndicates and you know all the all the um, organizations. But that's that's what we're thinking about when we're out there and we're preparing against them. Right? Is how do we affect them negatively so it costs them more money right. to operate, and then we have to be prepared for where they're going to go next. That's right. So as a as a result of that work, you win uh, or you're awarded the secretary or the S one. A silver medal for leadership. What is that? Um, I think it's an award <laughs> that they give to you when you're awesome. Uh, <laughs> Fair enough. <Moving> so, on. <laughs> well, honestly, though, uh, Coast Guard put me in for that award. Oh, wow. um, they really appreciated, I guess, the partnerships and the leadership you know, that we had developed with their with their folks, the captain of the Corpus Christi Coast Guard. Um, um, I don't know if it's a sector or a station in Corpus Christi, but he was very, very appreciative of, you know, just the Border Patrol coming in and bringing everyone together. And they didn't really want to lead it. Yeah. It just I didn't want to lead it, yeah. you know. So as is typical for the Border Patrol, we're like, okay, we'll take it yeah, and yeah. we'll make it good, right? Yeah, so it's interesting because we, it's very easy for us in 20, let's call it 2023, you know, we're coming up on 2023 to put that lens over... Uh, things like coordination. So fast forward 13 years, we probably do it a little better than we did in 2010. So again, this is what a seven-year-old organization now, DHS at the time. So the the it's important to look at 2010 through the lens of 2010, yes. right? So the the when we talk about you know hurting you know the cats, if you will. That was a much taller order back then yes, than it is today. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. People were still very resistant to, D- to even uh, identifying with DHS, yeah. much less being the leader for an integration. Yeah. I mean, that word has become like this dirty word at this point, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. No yeah. more integration. Yeah. You talk about generational changes and 20-year type changes. We're, I think we're, uh, you know, DHS is established in 2003, okay. 2003. We're coming up on 20 years like I said, things are, are a little more mature than they were in 2010. So you're half a generation into right. uh, forcing the type of change that people are generally opposed to. Right. So uh, no wonder that uh, you, you you should win a, a, a medal or a leadership award uh, from the secretary's office. And even better that another organization within that stream, if you will, uh, had the had the foresight to uh, to recognize your efforts then. So congratulations on that. Oh, thank you. They were great partners. Awesome. So you're rewarded uh, after the recon with an assistant chief patrol agent. That's an ACPA at the Rio Grande Valley headquarters. Yeah. What were you in charge of there? I'm going to guess planning. 
<laughs> well, some of it was planning, um, but it was so after the recom success, yeah. uh, my success with the recom specifically, I was asked to lead the McAllen area team for the South Texas campaign, mm. which was yet another DHS initiative for integration. Yeah, um, <clears throat> it started in just South Texas, and then it it went across the whole of the border at some point and turned into Joint Task Force West. Right. But South Texas campaign was the very first. Mm-hmm. Initiative and it was a little bit smaller and it was mostly just CBP. Right. Um, had some Coast Guard worked into it and and the other federal investigative entities. Mm-hmm. But I was told at the time, you're good at building things. We want you to lead this thing. You know, come in, take over this team. They're kind of, you know, fledgling a little bit. Yeah. Um, so that's what I was asked to do. Awesome. This is uh, actually where our our paths first crossed. I was on yeah. the. Uh, the STC, the South Texas Campaign um, kind of leadership team, running comms for then Director uh, Harris, Robert Harris. Yeah. Um, and you're right, the uh, the requirement for leadership in the in the RGV team specifically was high, um, and because quite frankly, that's where most of the traffic that we were addressing originated from. So it was an easy transition from the recom into yeah. STC. I already for, knew the partners. Right. Yeah. yeah, it was a it was a it made thing it made the flywheel go faster yes. for for the greater STC for sure because we were concentrating very heavily in RGV specifically even RGC Rio Grande City Station. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So from there you get an opportunity to go back to a station right where we all love to be and this is as a deputy patrol agent in charge uh, back at the McAllen Station. Right. How was that time? That was probably one of the hardest positions that for personally and, and mentally and just stress wise mm-hmm. that I've that I've done in my career yeah. at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> anyway, um, and going in there the first day, no lie, the first day on the job, OSHA's at the front door. <laughs> Uh, you see detention facilities now and these big CPCs and, you know, they're all clean and the air is nice. Well, McAllen Station Detention Facility at the time, the air conditioning system was not ever designed to handle the number of people that were coming into that facility and the amount of dirt and just everything that was in the air. And, you know, so someone called OSHA. So my uh, initiation (laughs) as a deputy patrol agent in charge of the station was OSHA, dressed up like they're the FBI on a raid, OSHA, big black hat, um, at the front door that morning. I'm like, well, come on in, let's talk. Um, But my my initial first sort of effort there as DPAC was to engage the union. Yeah. And build a better relationship with the union and just have a conversation so that everything wasn't a a fight, you yeah. know, or or they're, you know, pushing our buttons just to get attention. Like, let's address these things as low level as possible. Talk to me. Come talk to me. We will handle it. Right. It's a, I mean, it's an illustration of the tectonic shift that was going on in our organization at the time. I, again, remember 2010. This is really when uh, the surge of migration starts to really hit and and we had predicted this uh happening a couple years prior so we started trying to beef up uh in terms of personnel south texas but to your point the other the other logistics tail um lagged pretty significantly so we were detaining far more people than we ever had ever and our stations our facilities were never built for that ever they would call the fire marshal he's like what do you want me to do yeah i can't close down a federal facility right 
Yeah, so we started working towards, you know, the first kind of central processing center at that time. Yeah, so this is where, you know, we've, uh, central processing for context is a, a dedicated facility for just basically processing short-term detention and then, you know, processing out to an appropriate location, whether it be repatriation, uh, some HHS facility if you're a child, right. health and, and human we services. hit hard with unaccompanied juveniles right. at that time. That means no parent, no guardian. I mean, as no young as one year old. Right. Um, sometimes. And so, like, how do we even deal with this? Yeah. You know, we don't have, if you put a female in a cell, you can put no one else in that cell. That's right. You put a child in another cell, you could put no one else in that cell. Right. So you're, you're, you're limiting your space every time you have a different demographic. Yeah. So you're really on the ground floor of maturing the way in which we um, house, care for, feed uh, the, so the migrants. Contracts. Yeah. This is, I mean, Brand new at that yeah. time. Folks that are experienced today have, you know, largely you and, and the team in RGV to thank. And, and quite frankly, we still use RGV as, as the model yes. for how business should be done. They have done. really figured it out. Right. Yeah. yeah out of necessity. Yes, exactly. <laughs> They've had to figure yeah. it out, and they have. Um, and, and we... Um, we go along, and the good thing I think about RGV is it's not necessarily uh, bound like some other sectors, like Tucson, for example, by some um, case law, right? So we we do our best to understand the spirit of those laws as it relates to things like Tucson, apply them in other places, and uh, you know, priority number one for us as it relates to short-term detention is throughput of children, yes. right? They're just there. It's an unfortunate. Um, Reality. Yeah, unfortunate reality, but we definitely uh, prioritize their care and their movement so that um, we don't get looked at in other ways. It's just the right thing to do. There's nothing. There are victims here. Right? And at that time, Jay Johnson was the secretary of DHS. And I remember working um, a Mother's Day. He wanted to come down and bring his wife and go on a tour. And so we did that. And then they um, finally... Um, declared a humanitarian emergency, and we started getting some help from FEMA and some attention and doctors from the Coast Guard yeah. and Public Health Service and all those types of things. So it was it was a good thing to 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 have to work on a Mother's Day to finally get some relief. Yeah, well, it's it's uh, again. I want to talk about this, but um, sacrifice, right? You know, we talk about the mission and the people, but uh, you're also a parent, yeah. right? So you understand that sometimes. Uh, the the mission has to come first, uh, you know. It's still a testament to to your and, and Chief Scudder's uh, ability to to raise children, but that's hard. Yeah, that is hard. It's hard to miss the first of anything. Yeah. Um, but my my attitude to that has always been, I will have to sacrifice one thing or another because there's no such thing as balance. Yeah. There really isn't. Mm -hmm. um, and my daughter, thankfully, was young and doesn't remember a lot of things <laughs> that I remember I missed. <laughs> right. Um, then, and then I was able to be there for all the high school stuff. Yeah. 95% of it. Right. Um, but she really, um, I don't know if she even really grasps to this day sort of the the immense pressure and effect that it has had on our dad and I because we've yeah. kind of kept her separate from that, you yeah. know. It's it's a good story for, you know, <laughs> if you do aspire to do, you know, executive leadership uh, responsibility or jobs in this organization, there's a cost. There's there's absolutely a cost. A cost. absolutely need to have a good partner, yeah. a good support system. He and I did it ourselves. We yeah. didn't have family. Mm -hmm. um, very early on when our daughter was young, very young, we had 
um, we cared for all of our parents. They all lived with us. Oh. It was a wheelchair uh, right. <laughs> central. Um, yeah. All three of them were, were in wheelchairs at one point. So uh. we not only did we take, and I think that's something that this generation too is going to face. It's that sandwich generation, right? right? You're raising kids and taking care of ailing parents at the mm. same time. And it's really, really challenging. Yeah, you do some great work over time with as it relates to this, and, and I definitely want to talk talk to that. So feel free to inject uh, where that comes up uh, appropriately. But um, this is something that became near and dear to your heart, and with a strong understanding that sacrifices need to be made, but at the same time, the organization has a responsibility to also take care of its people when they have the opportunity to do that. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So while you're in RGV, is this where you go to Big Bend? No. No? So you go to San Diego next? Yes. Great. So you head over to, you, you, you finish up in McAllen, and you head to San Diego as the patrol agent in charge? Of no, I went there as an assistant chief okay. um, with the LER. Okay, great. And how was that? Very challenging. <laughs> very, very challenging. Yeah. Uh, dealing, honestly, with the union all the time can be very, very stressful, very... Um, kind of a negative environment a lot of the time when you're dealing with um, labor employee relations, you're dealing with discipline, yeah. you kind of see uh, the worst part of the patrol, I guess, if you will. Yep. Um, so, But I learned a lot. Mm-hmm. And I think it really helped prepare me for future positions, just having that experience and understanding what it takes and the, the things you're supposed to do when you have a disciplinary problem and right. so on and so forth, how to talk to people, yeah. how to ask people what's going on because typically discipline doesn't have happen because someone just feels like doing the wrong thing that day there's always an added circumstance yeah i think it's interesting we talked about the, the union a couple times and i would be willing to bet that your relationship with the union today is probably better and far different than it was say in san diego or rgv those types of places just because you kind of grow to have an appreciation for what they try and achieve for the mm-hmm. workforce, um, but you're also entering into these positions, um, and quite frankly, nobody's ever really ready for the next position. Right. Like you just gotta get thrust in a lot right. of fires. Lot you know, too. it's you're lucky if you have like, hey, I, I'm really, really ready for whatever comes next. Most of the time, it's you know, we're we're all learning together, yeah. right? Um, so, you know, would you would you say that's probably true? Like, you have a different understanding, different appreciation for what they do today. I, I definitely, the experiences I had with the union in RGV, San Diego, yeah. <clears throat> Big Bend in particular, I had a very good relationship with them. I think that they saw me as fair. Yeah, and that's really all I I would ask for. Yeah, both sides. Yeah. Right. Um, and I, I, that's my experience, too. You know, dealing with the union as a patrol agent in charge, mm-hmm. much different than dealing with the union as a chief right now. Yeah. You know, I, I think uh, probably to, to your experiences, it's just about building relationships, mm-hmm. right? Communication, listening. listening and honesty, trust and fairness. Absolutely. Right. It is it is what it is at this yeah. point. Um, so um, you're at LER as an A chief. What comes after that? After that, I get another opportunity to be chief of staff for the Joint Task Force West California Corridor. Um, so that's an easy one. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so here we're standing up this thing. Can you please come and lead it? Um, and yes, absolutely, I'll do it. Um, I, I, I've got this at this point. Right, right. right. Now you're actually prepared. Now I'm prepared. This is the I've one done of this the... before. Seven um, jobs later, yeah. <laughs> you're entering. Commander Harris is still the guy in charge, That's so right. I know what he wants, you know, what he expects. Right. 
Um, and we move, we move forward and we, you know, uh, with that and it, it gets to a point where, um, I'm ready to leave and they're ready to let someone else jump in and take, take the realm. And then at that point, during that same time, I was the division chief for um, law enforcement programs right. in San Diego sector. So I'm dual hatting. Mm-hmm. So I'm pretty busy. Yes, sir. And, and I, I like being busy. Yeah. But sometimes it's yeah. like, okay, I, I'd spend half my day doing JTF West and half my day doing programs. And then um, from there, I went to the PIC of Imperial Beach. Yeah. So I want, to, I want to circle back just for a minute. So you're dual hatting. You're mm-hmm. very busy. Mm-hmm. Your daughter's older. My daughter's older. How's that going? Um, it's good. She is at that point in eighth grade, yeah. going into high school, and she's she's a smart kid, yeah. like intelligent, very, very intelligent. She gets that from her father. Okay. I'm perfectly fine with admitting that. <laughs> they are the easy kind of smart that really irritates me because <laughs> I have to study. Yeah. <laughs> um, but she's doing well. She's always been a good student. Um, always liked school, mm-hmm. never a problem child. We got really lucky, yeah. to be honest. I base it completely on luck. Right. Um, she's just a good kid. Is it, these are influential years, though. Like yes. you want Like San Diego might be home for a minute. It's going to be home because we promised her we would not move her until she gra- until she graduated high school. Mm-hmm. We would not move again. But it doesn't come at at, at no cost. No, it doesn't. Right? She had some challenges socially, yeah. um, connecting with people because she thought, well, I'm just going to move again. Right. You know, so she had some difficult like preteen years. Right. That. So, and I think Chief Scudder, Ryan Scudder, even goes, you know, because he gets promoted, he even slides over. Where you he know, slides over to El Centro at this Central. time. Right. Because you guys are committed. We're committed. We're not leaving. We're not pulling our kid out of school. Right. And so you forgo opportunities at that time too. So this is the point in my career where I'm sacrificing. Potential promotions. Sure. I don't know if I would have gotten them, yeah. but I'm in a point where I'm not doesn't matter. Not willing to move at this point. I yeah. promised my kid yeah. that we're not going to pull her out of high school. And we had that specific conversation. We are not going to move you. You can make friends. <laughs> You're not going to have to leave. Yeah. You know. So I, I I keep going back to the story because I think it's important. You can still aspire to do um, upper level leadership or in this organization. Um, and it can even come at potential cost to your point, like maybe it cost me jobs, maybe it didn't, but at the same time, it's a snapshot in time. Right. You, you had the ability to maintain great, um, uh, relationships with the, with the people that are, are leading in San Diego. You just work really, really hard. Kind of going back to that paradigm of being a good border patrol agent first, right. you own the job you're doing, right? right? You're, you're a patrol agent in charge now, like you can't learn that job in a year anyway. Like, right. it's really good to be a patrol agent in charge. Again, the best uh, job in the entire Border Patrol. Right. Like, people want to maximize that time. Yeah. So it's it's a perfect kind of intersection with a great job at a fantastic station. Yeah, the, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Who doesn't want to be on the beach? Yeah, this is... <laughs> How many opportunities do you have in the Border Patrol to be on the beach? Like, right. the literal beach. Yeah, this is that, <laughs> that iconic, you know, uh, station or that, that, that iconic picture people see of, of the water and kind of like the, the barrier, the fence, whatever you want to call it, uh, goes out into the water a bit. Right. This is the Imperial Beach Station and that's what you're in charge of. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and it's, you know, it's, it, there's still things to do. It's not a boring station by any stretch of the imagination. There's plenty yeah. of work. <laughs> yeah, there is. But at first, so I was very fortunate to walk into a station that was well managed and taken care of before I got there. Great. Um, and I give credit to the prior PIC because he really did, you know, a great job. Yeah. Um, so I was honestly a little bored at first. Okay. Because I'm coming from doing two jobs, and I'm like, 
well, there's no problems to solve here. What do I do? I don't, I don't. And the, one of the watch commanders, the first thing he asked me is, well, what are you going to change here? I'm like, wow. Because, you know, they, they have this view of leaders that come in and they want to yeah. change something to get some resume fodder or yeah. make an impact and then they fly away, right? I'm like, well, I don't know. I don't, if nothing needs changing, then I won't change anything. Right. You know, and uh, we we actually became very good friends. Awesome. <laughs> before he retired, but you know that's kind of the challenges that leaders face when they move into positions, and you know that position sometimes is seen from from the troops as a revolving door. For sure. And they like consistency. Yeah. They like knowing what what to expect when they yeah. come in. Them. What are they? What is she going to change? Yeah. We just got settled. You said it earlier, right? Like then they then they you know you get. Uh, uh, a person like Kathy Scudder that comes in, probably not her last job. Right, and they know. And this. they know that. Yeah. Right. Um, so that you know, I, my guess is, uh, you know, when when Ryan's the PIC of, of RGC, same thing. Mm-hmm. Probably not his last job. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's important to again to your point, if nothing is changing, then don't change it. Just improve on little things here and there, and you can continue to to do great work. Um, but this is an opportunity to build relationships. Um, this is an opportunity to, to settle a family. Thing. You had the fun things, right? Yeah. That connectivity. This is really the last time where you can have that connectivity, right? Absolutely. And we did some really, really good things with the community. Yeah. While I was there in IB. You know, you got those opportunities for outreach. We did uh, the Haunted Barn, which was a, <laughs> uh, a community event where we basically charged a can of food. <laughs> and we donated to the San Diego Food Bank. And the agents, so creative. Um, legit scary haunted house, <laughs> and I was the flying witch. Oh well, for yeah, take that for what it's very like. out of character. Um, very, very out of character, character. absolutely. <laughs> so, but that was so much fun, and it really gave us an opportunity to get to know each other, and also to do something for the community. And it was at a time where we could afford to do something like that with our staff and mm-hmm. with our, you know, wasn't that wasn't the case two years later. Yeah. So, and I don't want to belabor this issue as a gender issue, but you're the first female PAIC of, of IB. Not many female PAICs generally in the patrol. Sure. Did you have to, you know, balance anything there? Did you have to, or were you just accepted as, as one of the agents and, and you kind of just lead that way? So I think sometimes you are, your, your reputation precedes you. Mm-hmm. Um, but also I tend to have this um, um, poker face, we'll call it. Fair enough. For the, uh, That's not what she calls it. But. <laughs> um, and I remember the D-pack there was Donnie Fitch, yeah. and uh, old patrol guy, right? Old board hacker. Yeah. Not that he was old. I don't mean that. But he'd been around a while. He, yeah. he, he went to mandatory. I will be honest. Donnie Fitch taught me how to be a PAIC. That's awesome. Awesome guy. Um, great mentor. Um, but he, he told me, you know, I told everyone, like, this is just a fake hate. Yeah. Like, she's really... You know, down to earth. She's really, really good. You know, yeah. and so that meant a lot coming from you know an old patrol yeah. kind of bore hacker. Like, right. you know, and the first time I ever talked to him, I think I offended him <laughs> because he was coming. He handed me or something about a set of keys in the women's bathroom. I'm like, what are you doing in the women's bathroom? You know, and he's <laughs> like, I wasn't in the women's bathroom. But he ended up being a great friend yeah. um, and a great mentor. You know, you can be mentored from your subordinates. Yeah, you have to respect the I experience that. that they've had. Yeah, it, that's that is such a great point. I think uh, you know, sometimes folks are like, "Well, I'm I'm the patrol agent in charge. I must know it all. Therefore, I can learn nothing from the people that work with me." I am absolutely not the person who knows right. it all. <laughs> well, it's a good story. Like you, you know, you have to be open to the opportunity to consume 
uh, knowledge at every turn because you can learn something every single day. The day you stop, you know, learning something is the day you should probably hang it up. Yeah. Right. Or when you think you know it all. Fair, fair enough. Right. Um, so your PIC of, of, of IB, what, what comes next? So the division chief of operations opens up, okay. and um, my husband's already told me that is the worst job in the world. <laughs> and I'm like, why would I want to do that? Mm -hmm. And the chief of the sector asks me if I'm going to put in. I'm like, I really like what I'm doing. I've got it made right now. I'm running my own station. I can go to all my daughter's events. Yeah. You know, I've had the conversation with the chief and deputy, like my kid is my priority. You know, she's, she's a junior in high school at this time, I think, yeah. going into her senior year. And I'm going to be there for all her things. Mm -hmm. Like, this is going to take a back seat. Um, and, and they're like, got it. We're, we, we're behind you 100%. Now I know, and there will be certain events where I have to show up, right, if there's a shooting or something right. like that. So I put in, and uh, I think there were, like, three applicants. Wow. Because it's really expensive to live in San Diego, and that job sucks. Yeah. Um, so, fast forward, I get selected. And um, one day I go from being PIC of Imperial Beach on the very west side of the sector to the leader of all these type A, mm -hmm. all men, mm -hmm. longtime San Diego agents, um, very connected to each other. I'm still an outsider. Yeah. I've been there four and a half years I didn't come up through San Diego, right. right? They've got their, every sector has their click, right? right? So I've got to figure out how do I lead these guys without being, in, you know, overly demanding or, you know, I want them to come together as a team, yep. right? I don't want to have to tell everybody everything to do because that's not my leadership style, first right. of all. Um, and also they're not going to do it. Yeah, I've got to figure out a way to get them in my corner. Yeah. And Chief, at that time, Chief Scott, had a lot of changes he wanted to make. And mm -hmm. accountability was becoming a big factor. And I'm like, great, thanks. I'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> so, so there I am. And then what happens, um, I think, let's see, I think I EOD'd in July, June or July. And then the mass migration starts. Yep. <laughs> November 25th, 2018, we get hammered in San Diego sector. And it's on the news footage. You see, you know, aliens come across and they're taking down the fence in areas. Yes, San Diego probably had the most fortified, but there are areas that are 20, 30 years old. Right. This was prior to the, you know, 18-foot, 30-foot bollard and all that going in. Yeah. So they're just, they're just tearing it down. Mm -hmm. And we are overwhelmed. And San Diego hasn't seen activity like that since the 90s. Yeah. And they're used to they're used to kind of just doing their thing, and then it just just goes to goes to crap. That is a you know, that is a huge inflection point. You know, it, the the irony here is like you're on the ground floor in 2010, right? You have these kind of uh, mass migration events that, quite frankly, nobody was used to. This isn't this isn't uh, happening in other places either. Right. It's just now happening for the first time. In, uh, RGV in, was the center of the universe for many years. Right, yeah. but at the same time, there were still no like inflection points where like twenty thousand people came over that right. day. Like right. that was, there was wasn't no caravans. There was no caravans. Right. There's no uh, what I'm trying to say here is there's no uh, textbook 
for how to handle these things, yeah, no. right? No. But you've spent the last, you know, what, at this point, what, 20 years of your career, uh, 22 years or so of your career building this acumen to lead, yeah. right? So you're not necessarily at the fence. No, you know, I was Pushing not. folks back, right? You, you have the, the understanding that, you know, kind of a, the general on the battlefield, if you will, right? right? You, you step back and you're just leading as you're supposed to. So if you're down there getting, getting uh, caught up in the fray, who's leading? Right. And that's what you're doing. Right. Or not doing, I should say. So I'll tell you who was down there. Was the chief and the deputy. Right. Well, maybe they were down there because <laughs> they, they had and the I confidence. And I said, what are you two doing? Yeah. It's, <laughs> but they did. They responded just in, just like any agent would because we all come from that. Right. right? So here's the, the scenario. We had all come in on a Sunday. Right. Because we knew the caravan was Sunday. coming yep. to prepare for this. And it hit while we were in the middle of planning. Yeah. And we're watching things happen. You know, it, the the commissioner is watching the RVSS cameras yeah. from Washington D.C. as it's happening. Right. The Secretary of Homeland Security, the President, is watching it happen, and we're in the middle of the fight. Yeah. It was crazy. So what'd you learn? <sighs> what did I learn? What did uh, you learn? It was chaos. It was. I learned that that general sort of mentality is very very important. Yeah. Because when you send all your troops to the battle line, and they're getting just worn out and tired and you keep sending more troops what they really need is water yeah yeah <laughs> you can't have everyone all at once yeah. you've got to prepare for the oncoming mm -hmm. um, preparation is key had we not had the information ahead of, ahead of time we would not have been as prepared as we were yeah. they shut down San Ysidro port of entry mm -hmm. the busiest port of entry on the southwest border right. they shut it down mm -hmm. that is about the only thing that stopped it yep it was unprecedented. Yeah, we, uh, a former chief of San Diego, chief of the patrol, um, chief fish used to say us all the time, good generals talk operations, great generals talk logistics. Yeah, if we had not had any, and thank, thankfully headquarters, you know, helped in that thing as well at the time. Dusty Cottle was in charge of yeah. the planning element, and they, they had already detailed agents down to us. Mm -hmm. We, for once, <laughs> were prepared ahead of time with right. extra extra manpower and those, thank God, because... I can't tell you what, I mean, we, we already shifted almost everybody west when that started happening. Mm -hmm. So what happens when you do that is you've got your eastern flanks completely exposed. Right. This is all happening in the area where you were at as a PAC. Correct. Right. So the good thing is you have some subject matter expertise in the area as well. So the logistics become a little easier to plan. You can start say, hey, well, I've got the littorals there. You know, far eastern flank is, or far got, western flank Coast is short. Coast Guard's got a cutter That's right. sitting out there. We've developed these relationships right. ahead of time, which is key also. Don't wait until you're in the fight to meet the leader to the left or right. Yeah. You've got to develop those relationships That's ahead it. of time. I love that because we did a, I did a uh, podcast with uh, uh, Chief Robert Garcia, Chief Carl Landrum on the heels of the mass migration event in Del Rio. Mm -hmm. And literally one of the major takeaways largely learned from the 2018 event was, you know, if relationships need to be built eventually, build them now. now. Yes, right. That was <laughs> almost central to the entire theme because you can't, you can't try and start meeting people that are in uh, integral to uh, quelling whatever right. threat there is to respond to in real time. So I need to be able to pick up the phone and be able to say, Hey, Kathy, 
Yeah. Right, I'm on a first name basis, and you're gonna. Absolutely. I got you. You know, like right. that type of we've thing. We've trained together. We've talked. We've had coffee multiple times. Right. You know, not just a, like go to your office. Hi, how are you doing? This mm-hmm. is what I do. It's right. a legit like relationship, right. and this leads into things like protests. Oh yeah. And you know, organized. We're gonna cross the line, kind of things, and people to know they're gonna get arrested. Well, we had to have a relationship with the Oops. Park Service. Yeah. Uh, the state and locals too yeah. ahead of time. So. It's about this. Like, it's interesting. We talk about division chiefs, and you're saying, "Well, now you're the leader of all these Taipei personalities or the PAICs, and you can probably get mired down in conversations about operations, mm-hmm. right?" But at the same time, while you're doing that, you have another responsibility to start doing this relationship building on the side. So, you know, the as you we we call it positions of greater responsibility because I have a greater expectation that you're right. doing more than just you know, leading the PAICs, you're developing relationships with the local park service. Operations part, in my opinion, is easy. Right. That's what we train people from day one, how to be an operator. You've got that market cornered. Absolutely. (laughs) It's the other markets. It's the other stuff, building relationships, learning how to talk to people, listening, hearing their side of the story, all those different things to to understand their perspective. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's a great story. It's a great, it's a great, uh, tale for folks that are trying to, like I said, aspiring to be uh, upper leaders in the organization, like you have uh, more responsibility means we expect more out of you. Absolutely. That kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So this is where you go to Big Bend. Yes. Well, prior to becoming the division chief. Yeah. Right. So you you get the opportunity to go serve as the acting deputy chief patrol agent for the Big Bend sector for 120? Uh, 90 days. 90 days? 90 days. Yeah. So how was that? Coming from San Diego. Yeah, so I went from RGV to San Diego, then to Big Bend, and um, Big Bend was not like either of those places. Beautiful, remote. Mm-hmm. The nearest Walmart, we define civilization by Walmarts, is an hour and a half away <laughs> from where I am staying yeah. the majority of the time. So you drive into Marfa, Texas, and it's a very old cowboy town, small mm. town, little tiny hardware store, little tiny grocery store. Um, I'm not going to find my pumpkin spice creamer at the grocery store. Like, I've got to make my own, right? So I get there, and um, the chief, the acting chief at the time, basically called me up out of the blue and said, hey, I was looking at your resume, uh, or not my bio, Mm -hmm. and uh, you have all the experience we're looking for for this detail. Can you come in and just kind of... Look at things, see how they're going, you know, teach some people something. I'm like, yeah, absolutely. It was at a point in time where I was having a bit of a personal uh, situation. I'd had a miscarriage, and I was looking for an opportunity to just kind of go somewhere else, do something different, get away. Um, So I was like, heck yes, let me call my husband. Mind you, he's on detail. Oh, my goodness. At the time, (laughs) our daughter is sophomore, junior, can't remember right now, so... Have some really good friends. This mm-hmm. is where connections in the Border Patrol comes in, right? And um, there's a three-week period where neither one of us is going to be home. Okay. So our daughter goes and stays with them. This is at the end of summer, so she doesn't have school. Um, so she goes and stays with them for three months. Great friends. Um, wonderful people. They love her. She loves them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that part's taken care of. I don't need to worry about it. And my kid is is... She's an introvert. I'm not. She's not going to go party or get in trouble or anything like that. I don't have to worry about that kind of stuff. And Ryan is now switching out and coming home. So I get to Big Bend and I'm starting to 
meet people. I've been in San Diego for a couple of years now, and I'm kind of used to the culture there. And I get to Big Ben, and it's like back to basics. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. I'm like, I like this. Yeah. Like, I really like this. I'm going to implement some of these things when I get back to San Diego. Sure I am. Um, and I get an opportunity to work with their professional staff, their lawyers. Um, they're all very, very close because a lot of them are from that area. So they know each other. The yeah. community is small. Um, and I get an opportunity to work with some really great folks out there who probably haven't gotten the deserved attention that that they should because they're in Big Bend and it's, you know, the bastard child of the Border Patrol. It's a, considered a smaller sector, yeah. but they have the most mileage yep. of the over 525 miles of border mm-hmm. area, a lot of which is inaccessible because of the Big Bend National Park there. But still, um, just hardworking like good old border patrol work yeah. is still going on in Big Bend sector, and so I, you know, have, I'm I'm the main disciplinarian yep. for the sector, and I take a little bit different perspective when I'm working with the union and the lawyers and stuff. On I'm a big fan of last chance agreements, yeah. big fan. Like it's on you at that point. So mm-hmm. I take the opportunity at that time to kind of do my own, do my own thing and uh, build a good, I guess, reputation for being fair. Yeah. Um, when it comes to that type of stuff. So great 90 days, met people I'll never forget, still keep in contact with a lot of people down there. And and I am now a huge advocate for yeah. Big Bend sector. I love that. That's uh, Big Bend is, is uh, to your point, it oftentimes gets overlooked or cast aside, but um, what they do with what they have huge. is impressive. Yeah. It really and is. they had kind of gotten to a point, some of the PICs, that they just kind of gave up asking because they always got told no. Yeah. I said, you, so I worked with them on their budget justifications, on, you know, building that language that, that makes sense. And then, and then one thing I told that came back to me later was I said, if you want to be treated like a big sector, you need to act like a big yeah, sector. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. That's awesome. So you go back to San Diego and you're on the move again. Now I'm going to be, yeah. You go up to headquarters. Yeah. As the? Associate chief over the, I think, ops west yeah Yeah. ops west but you do that for about four seconds yeah and you become the acting acting deputy for ops acting deputy chief for the law enforcement operations directorate working directly for uh the chief this is the b3 position the chief of the uh uh, operations directorate um tell me about that time this our 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 paths circle back again we circle back again yes yes um so i got there in december Mm -hmm. and the pandemic hit. Yes, ma'am. The pandemic hit. So we're like, what is this pandemic? I don't, <laughs> never in my life, we got to wear masks. Yeah. I don't understand. And then Title 42, you know, the the, the, the uh, CD, CDC That's authority right. to expel people um, comes, comes in. We've got to come up with this plan, like how we're going to execute and all this kind of stuff. And the whole entire border is changing mm-hmm. and it goes quiet for about five minutes mm-hmm. right in in the in the in the larger scheme of things um but it was it's still there's a lot of demands from the white house at this time i'm attending i mean briefs in the situation room where i'm having to brief steve miller mm-hmm. who was not an easy man to talk to yeah. or to convince that we're doing everything we can at that time we were down to like a thousand apprehensions a day nationwide yeah. and they're like what more can we do mm-hmm. I'm like are you kidding me yeah 
I don't know what more we can do. Like, I think maybe this is the acceptable level, yeah. right? <laughs> considering we uh, over... This may be the floor. Yeah, this <laughs> may be the floor, considering we, uh, you know, apprehended over 2 million last year. So um, it's just another p- time of challenges and 2 o'clock in the morning phone calls and managing that. And, uh, you know, my, my daughter's away at college now, so I'm not super worried about what she's doing, I can focus a large part of my time on my career yeah. at this point and really being there for the people. Like yeah. that, that I think is the point where probably when I was a division chief too, where I started to realize really the impact that the mission and the stress has on people yeah. and how every time there's a call at two o'clock in the morning, it's not a good call. Oh yeah. Like you're getting up and you're taking notes and you're calling someone else and it's not going to be a, a fun conversation. For sure. This, uh, we talked about where our past circle back. I was at the White House um, in my detail there. Uh, come back. I backfill you as Ops West <laughs> Associate Chief. And uh, this is the first time I think I actually start working for you and kind of had paralleled some things along the way from 2010 and beyond. But I, I tell this story often that, you know, not because you're sitting here in front of me, but I really appreciate, and this is probably a maturation over time too for you, right? But I really appreciate your style. Um, arguably one of my most favorite leaders I've ever worked for because um, you would say, hey, Ryan, I need you to do X by Monday. Didn't matter what day it was. 10-4, got it. What didn't happen after that is, okay, now it's you know three days earlier, like, hey, Ryan, you done with X? No, you said Monday. Um, and if I can get it to you faster, I will. Like that type of thing. That, that wasn't happening. You just, you gave us the task, right? You had this expectation that we would complete it. We were prioritizing it. It was coming from you. Therefore, you know, everything else kind of took a back burner. Um, and you never really, you know, were breathing down anybody's neck to get something done. Yeah. Um, and and you, uh, the way No one could ever say I'm a micromanager. Never micromanaged. <laughs> and I think a lot of it's, uh, I, I felt like you trusted us. Yeah, you've got to have that. Right. And we had a great team up there, yeah, too. I, I would put that team up against anybody. Yeah. It was a tremendous team. Yeah. And uh, the trust that was, we had to. <laughs> like, to your point, we're yeah. dealing with stuff, like, you know, seems like every day we're dealing with a new thing, but never dealt with a pandemic, never dealt with Title 42, mm-hmm. never dealt with uh, We're still having rioting. deaths in custody. Right. We're, you know, <laughs> agents committing suicide, line of, line of duty, like yeah. all the other stuff that's going on, on top of a pandemic, right. on top of riots. The whole nation was just in an uproar. Yeah. Um, it was just, it was a tremendous uh, learning experience for all of us. Uh, and I'm happy to have uh, been in the trenches with you doing that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, from there, you get an opportunity, you, you promote to a senior executive in the organization. Yeah. But once again, it's outside of Warp Patrol. It is. What was that? Uh, operation support, planning, analysis, and requirements evaluation. So when I read the job announcement planning. for that job, planning. <laughs> I'm like, wow, that fits right into my little niche, yeah. right? And I thought, I can definitely do that. Yeah. And uh, I kept it a secret. <clears throat> I didn't tell very many people that I applied for it. I certainly didn't tell people when I got the interview. I didn't tell people when I got the second interview mm-hmm. and the third interview. Um, I don't think I really told anyone until I had an EOD. Yeah. And, uh, and um, we had this joke. I don't know if you remember within um, our little mm-hmm. division there that mom was going out for cigarettes yeah. and she wasn't coming back. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yes. So um, it yeah. was a point in my career where I felt like I wanted to do something. And there had been a couple of years where I would come to work some days and just be like, I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. 
And it wasn't the the people or the organization. It was the job, mm-hmm. the demands, the unreasonable sort of demands, I guess, at that point. Yeah. Um, you know, I dealt with some depression and anxiety and a lot of stress. And I needed to find a way to make myself, I guess, feel like I was still bringing value to the organization. But I didn't need to be the one putting out the fires anymore. Yeah. I guess probably what we felt. Like, hey, I trust my team. Yeah. You know, we no, none of us were overloaded, you know, that type of thing. But, uh, it, yeah, I, re- I remember the joke well. remember who came up with it. Um, you know, we the, the, the irony here is, you know, going back to the former point, we really enjoyed that time. Um, so f- for you to uh, be leaving and never coming back stung a little bit. Yeah. But uh, we understood. Um, but, you know, you, you go off and do that. And I remember you saying, like, I was like, hey, is this it? And you're like, eh, never say never. Right? Like, right. I don't think I'm ever going to come back in uniform, for example, but I'm not closing any doors either. Right. Right? And uh, you do you do pair for a little bit, and then you come back as the into your current role, and that's right. the XD of Mission Support Directorate. Correct. What what led to that? That I um, was not enjoying the person I was working for. Yeah. Um, and it was very opportunistic, actually. Um I'd had a discussion with that individual, and then the chief asked me to come and talk to him. Um, and he had a couple opportunities open, yeah. and um, I said, you know what, maybe I'd like to do that one. And so I came back to the Water Patrol. Nice. And uh, I felt like this, in it, this is an area where I've focused some of my attention throughout my career <clears throat> in taking care of people. Yeah. And it just boils down to me now having the influence and leverage yeah. to put some things in place that before I leave the organization finally, mm-hmm. um, I hope to have so that the agents will um, have options and feel better supported yeah. um, and that the organization does care. Yeah. So mission support, you have a couple major veins, right? Yeah. Craig Hermong. Money. <laughs> Money, right? Yeah. Budget. Huge. How does what does that look like? This is what we're talking for all U.S. Border Patrol. Right. You know, what's our annual budget? So we have about a five billion, six billion dollar budget, more or less, right? Yeah. Pretty big Pretty deal. Pretty big deal. Pretty yeah. big deal, right? Equally big. You have all what I'll characterize as agent support. Yeah. Underneath you, right? That's the whole gamut of things that we do. Right. Operators, you know, we see a nail, we hammer it. Right. right. Got it. Right. Right. Pmod infrastructure they give you the things they give us the things yeah. right but they come to me for the money they come they to you the right that's where i'm going with this everything ties you know uh spad policy modernization requirements those types of things cost money right. right you all you always have to come back to you can have all the greatest ideas in the world and you can want to modernize or enhance readiness all day long but can we afford it is it budgeted for yeah, there is a process i can hear the other scudder chief scudder you know talking to me at length about Process, 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 process. So a lot of that, you know, you and budget process, just as an example, that's a two-year process. It's a four to five-year process. Yeah, yeah. you're not touching money right. for at least two years, but, the, but you got to start budgeting. If I wanted something 23, I'm thinking about that in 18, 19. Yes. Right? So it's hard, you know, this is hard for some folks who haven't, aren't as broad and deep over time, haven't, you know, taken a turn in the barrel in, in, in D.C. Or, or a couple turns in the barrel in D.C., they they don't understand that, yes, I would love to give you the $1 million of whatever you requested. But guess who I'm going to have to go to for that? <laughs> that's Congress. True. That's and, right. And they do not make it easy. Right, exactly. So um, 
this is this is a no BS job. That's what I'm saying. It's, this is way out of my comfort zone. Yeah. And way out of my comfort zone. The budget stuff, particularly. Yeah, yeah it all hinges on, on what you guys do in that shop. Yes. I mean, everything. Yeah. So, right. how's that going? It's going well. I have a really great team. Yeah. I have a great team. And my deputy um, is amazing. Yeah. Super smart. Um, she really kind of took the reins mm -hmm. at a point where a lot of staff kind of walked away. Yep. And it was on her. Yeah. And she's built... Um, a really good internal process and a really good team. Yeah. Um, I couldn't ask for a better team. They all really, really are devoted to their particular areas, yeah. and uh, they get it. Yeah, they really get it. Yeah, I mean, even at, even at the Border Patrol Academy, I'm in, I'm in the Office of Training Development within right. CBP, so I'm even outside of Border Patrol technically. If I need something, I still have to go back to the Mission Support Directorate and say, "Hey, this is what I'm thinking about doing. I yes, still need give you money too. Give us money. You, <laughs> Border Patrol pays for their own training." Right. Right. So Absolutely. OTD doesn't get appropriated right. for training when I, you know, this is why we, you and I specifically are in constant communication because I have to pay for Border Patrol Basic. We had this new thing called Border Patrol Processing Coordinators right. that kind of ebbs and flows requirements go up and down. Which, by the way, wasn't planned for in the cycle Correct. of the budget. So Correct. we had to work that in somewhere along the way. Absolutely. So these, these are the types of the decisions where. Um, you're kind of the inject point. Like, I'm not going to Chief Ortiz for those conversations. Right. I'm going to XD Scudder. He's going to come to me. Right, he's yeah. going to be like, why are you calling me, bro? Yeah. Like, <laughs> exactly. you know you're going to call Kathy anyway. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> so it's a, it's a, it is a, it is quite the job. Uh, I'm really, really happy that uh, you're in there leading it, uh, both in terms of uh, the expansion of, of the budget, but also your acumen for um, leading people. I think that's, that's a, a heck of a, opportunity for you and the board patrol is probably better off for it for sure um can you just give me an example i think uh, i kind of want to hear a little bit about the um, child care you know kind of going back to that just as an example of what kind of the inject point of msd does but how you overlay your experiences both profession professionally and personally into something that matters for cbp right so it really started out like we historically complain about especially females about yeah. you know child care and and the way the organization operates and how difficult it is right. to find child care on shifts yep. or or midnights or if you are in a remote area where you don't have family support so this started out as a grassroots sort of initiative with uh five or six ladies who mm. we had been talking and um finally someone just said we need to stop talking about it and do something about it. And yeah. I'm like, sign me up. I'm on board. I was not the initiator of it, um, but I did want to be a part of it. And then I had opportunities to influence because of my position and my reputation yeah. in areas where those folks maybe didn't have yeah. that that influence or, or didn't know somebody. So... Started out as grassroots, Border Patrol worked on a bunch of stuff. You know, we did surveys, the the ladies um, put together, we probably met like once a month or so. Then C1 comes to a muster mm -hmm. and it gets brought up to him and he's like, tells his, his staffer, I want this to be a thing, set up a tiger team. So it starts rolling into a CBP initiative. Yeah. And I'm the one who's, who's tagged to participate on the CBP work group. So it eventually turns into different things. We have lots of ideas, you know, could we do like a child care facility like DOD does at one of our facilities or nearby? Mm -hmm. Could we contract, you know, can we, you know, do nanny services? Like what are our options? So it turn, turns into discussions about 
the amount of money people make and how they then can qualify for the CVP yeah. caregiver um, supplement. And it's too low. Yeah. The amount, the qualification amount is too low. So we get that raised. So many, far more people, especially in the frontline levels, are now eligible to take part of that. That's great. And then um, just recently, actually, um, the commissioner has been speaking to us about the 2030 initiative. Yeah. Um, or the 30 by 30, by 30 yep. which is 30% females in law enforcement by 2030. And one of the major factors that comes up every single time we have this conversation, mm -hmm. to not to get females into the organization, but to keep them, yep. is childcare. Because like it or not, gender roles, whatever, females tend to be the primary caregivers for their kids, yep. period. And we, and we want to, for the most part. Sure. At least I always did. Yeah. Um, but childcare is, is now... So they're, they're asking us to dig back into all of our old work. I'm like, all right, I still have the slide presentations. Yeah. I have everything. Yeah, I have the names of everyone that was involved previously. So they're pushing forward again to see if we can do more. That's awesome. Um, because when things leave Border Patrol, a lot of times it gets watered down or, well, what can we do? And, yeah. You know, and then administrations change and we lose focus. Yeah. But this is one of those things that, you know, uh, with people in different positions now, I, I can name probably five of the work group members that are in higher level positions now yep. that that are participating in this next That's effort. That's awesome. I, 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 it's, a, it's an outstanding initiative. You guys did a tremendous amount of work at the grassroots level that's now maturing. Um, the thing I like about it is that, you know, you can almost consider it, you know, lucky that you had this opportunity, this inflection point where the commissioner's like this, Absolutely. hey, well, this is going to be a thing, right? But I always say that luck is when opportunity meets preparation. It's right? somebody having, for it. well, it's somebody having the, the courage to stand up and muster and say, yeah. hey, Commissioner, this is a problem, yeah. and this is what we're doing about it. What are you going to do There's the opportunity, it? but yeah. you were prepared to right. act when the commissioner said, okay, absolutely, let's do it. Right. Right. Um, so I, I love that. Uh, the other thing about the 30 for 30, 30 by 30, excuse me, um, is if, if I'm behind it, right? It's, it's, it's a great initiative. But the thing you mentioned right now is like you have to really identify what are the the impediments are, yes. right? You can't just be like, oh, I'm not going to touch that. That's something we shouldn't talk about or whatever. Right. No, we have no problem getting women into the into the organization. Right. We don't. Them. It's yeah. keeping them. Right. That's the issue, 100. percent So, you know, and and to your point, you know, I, I'm in a border patrol family myself. Right. You know, she would prefer to her to raise the kids than me. You know, <laughs> probably not a bad idea. Okay. <laughs> yeah, right. But you know, it's, you know, we're lucky to keep folks like like you all. But some folks walk away too, yeah. right? So what? How can we just do better at that? At a minimum. So I think a lot of that feeds into sort of the agent support program. Absolutely. Um, peer support, just uh, general mobility options. Yeah. So. I had an opportunity this last year to speak at several different women's events, um, which I never thought I would enjoy public speaking, but yeah. I do enjoy um, those types of things where, you know, we have an opportunity to kind of share some wisdom. I guess I'm wise now. Yeah. <laughs> I think I am. Mm -hmm. um, but it was an opportunity for me to learn also. Like, that's a huge part of all those things. And we talked about equality versus equity. Okay. So equality means opportunities are equal. Mm -hmm. Equity means taking into consideration all the circumstances that that individual is dealing with to give them that equal or equitable chance. Yeah. That uh, it's if you are a single parent 
don't even have to be a single mom, obviously. We have yeah. plenty of single dads out Absolutely there. Absolutely do. You're a single parent who, you know, can't find child care on a midnight shift. What do you do? Yeah. Like, we don't have child care available for you unless you want to hire a nanny. Right. <clears throat> you know, there's there are many services, and I've used them all. So yeah. if anyone ever wants to know <laughs> what the multitude of different um, child care services are available to you, just give me a call. Yeah. Um, we, we literally used everything. That's awesome. Yeah, no, it's, I'm really, that's really encouraging to hear that you're, you know, you understand the, the bigger problem, like, sure, we can get them on board, but right. what are we doing in the middle? Do we really care that much about our people? If we do, we should do what we can to take care of them. 100%. That's why you're perfectly positioned in agent support or mission support right. directorate um, with that owns agent support. So glad to have you on board doing that. But we are in the What's Important Now podcast. Okay. Right. So I would like to hear from the XD of MSD at headquarters. What are the three or four things that are really vitally important to you right now? What keeps you up at night? Um, and the floor is yours. So um, the people. I don't have three or four things. I have one. Yeah. And it's taking care of our people. Love it. Um, as you know, suicide is at an all-time high in our organization. Um, mental health has become a real, real um, challenge for our people. PTSD, um, you know, I'm, I'm in touch with an agent um, that I worked with in the past that is having the most extreme case of PTSD I've ever seen in my life. And this guy <clears throat> was, you know, um, spec ops, all that kind of hard charger, always out there answering the call nonstop. And just one day his body said, no more. Yeah. Um, we have to take care of ourselves. Mm. We have to take care of each other. We have to ask questions. You have to know your people to know when something is wrong. Mm -hmm. You can't, um, you know, I always tell this story, um, especially to new supervisors. I was a new supervisor. I was the only female that was promoted. Um, there were there was one other female supervisor at my station, and I thought I had to, like, show them I met business, right? Yeah. I'm young. I'm not even 30 yet. And... Uh, I have this agent on my shift, and I'm on midnights, and uh, and he's not, he's just disappearing. Like, I don't hear from him. He doesn't answer the call. Hmm. I go and look for him, and he's racked out. I'm like, he's, man, he's a slug. He's not performing. I'm going to ding him on his PWP, yeah. right? So um, I try to, and my FOS says, um, no, you can't do that. That's like a fail. I'm like, but he's failing. It's like, no, we don't do that. Blah, blah, blah. I just, so I give him his PWP, and I don't think anything about it. What I did not do was ask him, hey, what's going on? Yeah. Like, what's going on in your life? It's, what's changed? Six months later, he committed suicide. And I will forever regret not having a conversation with him. Yeah. But at least I learned it early in my career so that now... It's a lesson for me, but it's a lesson I could pass on to others so they don't have to experience that as well. Yeah. Um, my husband was the FOS on his shift when he committed suicide, and he responded. Mm. So, you know, it's weird how these things connect. But um, the most important thing, always, not just now, is our people. Yeah. Knowing them and taking care of them. I love it. I think, uh, you know... Having that central to any command, um, whether it's MSD, the Academy, RGV, El Paso, doesn't really matter, um, should be all of our charge. Absolutely. Honestly. So, Chief, I'll always know you as Chief, XD Scudder, uh, thank you 
thank you for your time today. Thank you for mentoring uh, this latest class that graduated today. And thank you for all that you do as the XD of MSD. Thank you, Chief. Appreciate it. Thanks. With that, honor first. Mm -hmm.